All right, we are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And this doesn't happen too often, but every once in a while I'm on Twitter and I see a great mind out there that I just want to sit down and have a conversation with and just explore what is going on uh, in this uh, world we call Black equity, whether it be wealth, whether it be finance, economics, social topics, I just love to talk to really great people. And I think we're going to be able uh, to have that conversation today. Uh, I want to welcome, uh, uh, how, do I, how do I pronounce your name? I want to make sure we get this right. Uh, for the oh people. boy, <laughs> uh, my first name is Ara or Ara, as most Americans pronounce it. Uh, last Ara. name is a little more complex. Yes, Iluabugichuku, and one is Arabic, the other is Nigerian. So there you have that. <laughs> oh, I, I might have to ask more questions about that. Um, actually, okay. I, okay. I've been noticing that some of the schools are adding Arabic to like their, uh, their studies. Like if you're like in elementary school, you are able to uh, now potentially take on Arabic. Was, did you ever like study the, the language? Oh no, not at all. So <laughs> I wish I had something cool like that to share with you. <laughs> Actually, my parents are just, heavy Bible readers. Okay. Um, all of us have a traditional West African name, and then we also have a more American-friendly name, gotcha. uh, and they tend to be biblical, so Solomon, Moses, things like that. Um, mine just happens to be the, the rarer name in the bunch my siblings got, you know, named after Angel Gabriel and stuff like that. Gotcha. <laughs> Mine's gotcha. pretty random, but all of them are biblical in nature, yeah. That's dope. Uh, so what, uh, I don't really ask people like what they do. I like to ask people like, who are you? So, I mean, we got a little bit okay. about the name, but who, uh, if I'm just meeting you, uh, I don't know, we're bump, we bump into each other in, in some country. Who do you tell the world that you are? First, I'm a traveler. Uh, I live by my name. Uh, Ara actually means a wanderer or a traveler. So interestingly enough, that is, I would say, um, something that has contributed greatly to my understanding, my perception of the world, of society, of uh, life around me. And then second to that, I'm what I would like to call a wordsmith. <laughs> I work in words in every capacity from the technical side to the more commentary, social, uh, entertainment side, um, an author, uh, journalist, all fun things, all around badass, <laughs> uh, representing the East Coast, PAs in the building. No, I don't think Dope, dope, dope. <laughs> born, born and raised <laughs> in, in Pennsylvania? For sure, for sure, oh. definitely. Uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh to be exact which is not in anywhere, anywhere in the vicinity of Philadelphia. I know that is people's immediate go-to, but yeah, yeah uh, been in Texas coming up on a decade. Um, and yeah, outside of that, um, you know, a daughter, a mom, a friend, a soror, many things to many people. Dope. 
Dope. Okay, so what you're laying on the table, I want to explore a lot. Uh, definitely the wordsmith, the traveling, um, the, the communicator, the author. I know we're going to get into all of that, uh, but I do want to understand the Pittsburgh and the Philly thing. I want to understand this. I grew up uh, in Hawaii. I moved to Texas. I moved, uh, lived in Florida for a little bit. Now I live in the Carolinas. So I'm, I'm watching it from the outside. How okay. do people from Pittsburgh view Philly as a city? Not necessarily the people, but just as a city. Do, do you feel like on a national stage that Philly gets more attention and Pittsburgh kind of gets ignored? Does, was there any, any of that feeling coming up? Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> I no? cannot speak for all of Pittsburgh. I want to put that disclaimer out there. I feel like my Pittsburgh Eve is coming out now. <laughs> Putting me in an awkward position here. Get a little sweaty. Uh, I, I am in no way, shape, or form speaking on behalf of all of my city. Okay. As a child growing up, I don't think it's anything that you're, you're really aware of. Okay. keeping track of it's like where does Pittsburgh measure up against Philly oh people don't it's like you don't even think about that we okay. have this inner city culture this communal celebration that if you are from Pittsburgh you are just really about Pittsburgh it's fillers you know it's it's yeah. all of that so you're not too much focused on how everybody else perceives you gotcha. especially not where you stack up against Philly and that's no shade to Philly I have been all on on all sides of Philly. I love that city. Um, I did a lot of road tripping through Philly when I was in college. So <laughs> all love and respect to Philly because you know Philly get Philly gets active. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I'm kidding. Um, but it's, it's, I think the competitive side of the conversation is more sports aligned than it is social gotcha. and civil. I don't, Pittsburgh and Philly people don't have any issues as far as I know. Now, if we talk about Pittsburgh and Cleveland, I can't say too much. <laughs> I can't say too much. I feel that. Philly, feel oh, that. we have no problems. We're good there. <laughs> I feel that, and I respect that. Um, so you're a Steeler fan. I am, and I, I don't say this as a, any way to start any type of arguments or any fights oh, or anything. Okay. This, this is all love. I got nothing but love for the Steelers. But I am mm-hmm. a cowboy. Let me hear it though. Oh, come on. I'm just saying, That's I'm just like easy choice. I don't even feel disrespected. Too easy. Give me something. <laughs> Say you're a Ravens fan so I can really feel offended. No. <laughs> well, you, you know, do have a point. I've been in Texas too long. <laughs> as of, as of <laughs> late, there's not much for me to say about uh, the Cowboys. But I, I not do. At all. But I do believe that's going to show when it, when it is time to celebrate again. Um, the hey, I've been in the fight for 20-something years or whatever long it's been. Uh, this isn't a bandwagon uh, situation. So, uh, you know, I look forward to the, the days of glory to return. Okay. <laughs> I hope you had a lot of time. <laughs> no shade. That's no shade for the Cowboys. I don't think it will be that long, but we'll you see. Do your best. I appreciate that. Um, so you mentioned uh, about being a wordsmith, being an author. Uh, being a communicator, uh, what types of uh, areas do you study or uh, focus on when it's time to create in that realm? Um, 
Are we talking about like literary, you know, the more writer side of creativity? Sure, sure. Like, uh, or what do you sure. choose to, when you're creating, uh, like what topics tend to be a focus for you? Yeah, I think there is a missed opportunity for writers to talk about the creative component to being a writer. Um, because we struggle with the creative blocks, we struggle with the lack of motivation, we struggle with, you know, I mean, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, all the things, you know, as, as someone who likes to say that they've studied the actual lived experiences of the great um, and seen their maturation and the ebb and flow of life as a writer. <clears throat> I think I've allowed life to dictate to me what my creative process looks like. Mm. Um, and, and in what capacity my creation is, you know, directed. Lately, there's been a lot of motivation for me to create around parenting, um, Black childhood, uh, Black parenthood. As, as its own separate entity. I think we can talk about that later. Um, black literacy has really become a, a, a you know, a, a focus in my, my, for both personal and professional life. Um, and so academia has definitely, and, and where black people are in that space, has taken up a lot of my focus lately. Uh, and I've, I've learned, I've learned to accept that. I've learned to stop fighting and trying to create in the now, which I think there is a heavy uh, pressure to, you know, are you going to write about Jonathan Majors? Are you going to write about, <laughs> are you going to write about this FDK Williams situation? And it's like, hey, actually, no, no lie. I would love to, I would love to sit down and, and be able to tap into that creative space as it pertains to subject matter that maybe I might be casually interested in, but I don't feel any passion about. I'm passionate about Jonathan Majors and his career. So I'm learning to yield uh, both my professional and creative processes to, you know, where life is taking me and taking my focus at the time. And um, yeah, it's, I would say that although it is, load my creativity i'm creating things that i'm a lot more proud of now hmm no this is gonna be a deep combo when you, <laughs> let's when go you, yes we gotta go there so when you say black literacy and improving that what exactly how do you picture the current state of black literacy and what can what can be done to improve that area Whoa, yeah, so, you know what? I think I don't, I'm not even at a place where I have confidently conceptualized a solution to this problem. I respect that, I respect that. I think where I, <laughs> you gotta respect what I'm about to say. Yeah. Where I am right now is really in sitting in the truth the uncomfortable reality of the magnitude of the problem. Okay. 
so much. So I can't even sit here and say, oh, yeah, this is how we, because I, as someone who works in a, I mean, you know, words in my work, but I like to say, someone who works in words and has come into new assignments knowing that, okay, you write at a fifth grade level. That's the standard. You don't write anything above a fifth grade level for the public. You know, you just, you know, these things going in as a writer, as a journalist. However, sitting with the understanding of why we write things at a fifth grade level and why you miss half of Americans just by doing that, just by mm -hmm. writing things at a fifth grade level, you miss half of all Americans as a nation. We're at about half, 50% literacy. And it's important to note that we measure literacy in this country, you know, someone who reads at or above a fifth grade level. And it's also important to note that there are levels to literacy. I think everybody knows that. We've all been in the classroom, had to, you know, get called to read something, popcorn, somebody else reads popcorn. You know, the slow readers reading now popcorn, the guy who can't read, you get, you get what I'm going? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so we know that not everybody is literate at the same level. Where we measure as a nation, only half of us are smarter than fifth graders. Now, if that's how we're performing as a nation, right? And some people like to say, oh, if the country has a cold, Black America has pneumonia. Name me something more serious, right? We always know whatever, you know, America looks like is probably a lot more dire if we zoom into Black America. But Black Americans are, well, I mean, we're operating at less than 15, 1.5% literate. Mm. one five. Yeah. We are at a, an, like, this is a state of emergency. And I think where most writers are today is there was an article, uh, I believe it was on the hill.com um, that talked about how most black American youth cannot read or do math. I mean, we are talking and here's the, the scary part is the writers are writing about it. So who are we writing to? If we're acknowledging that we're speaking to a primarily illiterate population. Mm. So even in the way that we would want to address it by saying, hey, look, guys, we're illiterate. We're missing the illiterate portion. You get, you get what I'm saying? So yeah. now we've got to get illiterate portions of Black America riled up about this, acknowledge that it's a problem, and also start to create this conversation whereby we acknowledge that white supremacy plays an, an indefinite role, right? It's there. We see it. We cannot get around it. It is, it is you know? It's a permanent barrier for us right now. With that said, there are still things that can be done and that we should begin to do before this gets worse. And I think I'll say this, this last thing and then wrap up. It's important to acknowledge that this has gotten worse and can continue to get worse because we're talking about a community that had literacy rates above 80% in the 40s. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So we're not talking about people who have maintained an illiterate population since emancipation. We're not talking about that. We're saying that when we could only go to Black-only pools, we were more illiterate than we are today. And we can walk into any, li any library, any neighborhood, any bookstore in the country, right, and receive far better treatment than our ancestors. Yet somehow they were able to right, a, a maintain, acquire this life skill, and it is a life skill. If we are navigating a written literate world and a person is unable to read and write, 
Well, their only option is to resort to illegal means of survival. So we can't just call out the prison, you know, the school to prison pipeline without really talking about how our kids get there. If we know where it starts and the system knows where it starts, who's responsible for actually taking the first step in and say, okay, let me, you get, let me move in and see what I can do here. Trust me, it's not going to be the system. So this has become almost a, a life focus for me <laughs> because it goes way beyond our ability to succeed in the classroom and zeroes right in on our ability to, I'm sure what we'll get into later, to acquire this actual generational wealth that we keep talking about. <laughs> if yeah. we can't even, as the living current generation, build any sort of formative success here, plant roots, any of that, because we lack the most basic skills, then talking about generational wealth in any capacity of the future is really just uh, a complete waste of our time. You know, so that's, that, that's what, you know, that's, that's where my heart is right now. <laughs> that's where all my energy is right now. And Waking up everybody's that. eyes. Yeah. And then can we talk about what to do? Yeah. You know, as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm just uh, taking in the frequency that this conversation is presenting up. Um, it makes me think, you know, so many people are pushing uh, strictly uh, for financial literacy and how to close the gender, uh, the gender gap and the racial wealth gap. And um, but you bring up a really great point on this particular topic is what what uh, use is it to only focus on financial literacy if we don't have literacy overall? Right, not just um, just about money, but uh, understanding society around us in totality, or to the best of our ability to have uh, more awareness of what's around us by able to uh, read not just the books, but read the room, be able to read uh, the code that is in front of us to be able to maneuver as humans. Um, it just brings up. Uh, It definitely, you're definitely uh, waking me up when it comes to that particular. Yeah. Let me take it a step further then. Okay. The literacy is an umbrella term. Under literacy, we're dealing with the, the word side of it, right? The actual lit and literacy. But we're also dealing with numeracy. Your ability to recognize and understand numbers. People who are illiterate also struggle with numeracy. So trying to have a financial literacy conversation with someone who is functionally illiterate, they can't even show up to the table, to the classroom, right? To the course with the mm -hmm. skill set necessary to take in what you're trying to teach them. So at every angle, and trust me, I've sat with this for a while. <laughs> Let's just give you know, reparations, money, throw money at it. I've, I've sat with that for a really long time. But there is a, a part at which we have to acknowledge, yeah, we're kind of, there's a, a functional freeze that happens when your world is based off, you know, as its words and its numbers, and you don't fully understand either or. Wow. So it's, it's, I'm happy that we're having these conversations. However, 
I think there is a, a realistic side of it that is almost too painful for us to, to sit with and acknowledge, which is that most of our people aren't ready for that. Most of our people aren't ready for financial literacy courses. They're actually at, at, at ground zero, ABCD kind of ground zero. And because we have, I mean, well, we're here now, so let's, let's go there. Okay. <laughs> because we have even seen a celebration of the successful illiterate. Mm. We have even lost our fervor. We have lost our disdain for illiteracy because we have the Floyd Mayweathers. We have the, I mean, hate to say his name, but we have the R. Kelly's. We have the mm-hmm. majority of the NFL, NBA guys who are, will tell you, I failed out of, you know, if not for athletics, making sure that I didn't. I would have sailed out of here because this was not how I saw, this was not my, my method of acquiring success. I can become successful around becoming a literate person. We have to now struggle with that narrative being in the way. Black children actually thinking, I don't have to show up in class if I can just really perform on the court. I can become successful through that. So yeah, we're we're putting the cart way way before the horse. <laughs> we're we're still in the barn in most in most places, especially when we break this down by state, by city. We've got our Baltimore's, we've got our Jackson, Mississippi's. Yeah, we're we're really at ground zero here. Man, the as you were saying that you painted a a picture for me where I'm seeing people saying, look what they overcame. And then the story gets written, people move on to the next story. And we never like study the thing that someone overcame. It just, you know, these obstacles are placed there. Then they're celebrated by, you know, a few people here and there. And then the thing that people overcame just uh, is all to the side and there's not enough uh, attention placed on on those uh, ideals or those uh, hurdles. I agree. It comes down to what do we memorialize as a culture? What do we celebrate? Where are our priorities? And I think a step further than that, acknowledging how difficult it is to change cultural directions. Mm, yeah. Because if we acknowledge that we don't have a culture that celebrates, you know, the, the actual building blocks to generational wealth and success and all of those things that we're trying to, if we recognize that we have a culture that's actually counterproductive, let's use that word. Let's say we have a culture that actually works in retrospect of what it is that we say that we are after, do we, are we being honest with how difficult it is to course correct? I don't know, you, you raise a great point. Yeah, for a very long time, I have yielded <laughs> as, as not only a mother, but as a special needs mom, I've yielded to the fact that the help that you need the help that you need, doesn't matter if everybody around. And I think at this point, the system agrees with black people. Yeah, you guys could use a helping hand. Yeah, you could use a leg up. Sure, we agree. <laughs> you can get everybody in the room to agree to the situation and how you've assessed it 
and the fact that there are needs that are going unmet. It is now getting those unmet needs met that always presents an added level of difficulty. We have for a very long time as Black people been coming to the table and trying to identify what's the problem here? What are the challenges? What are the barriers? We, yes, we know. I think we've got a going list. <laughs> I think the white people know. I think, we, I think everybody knows at this point. Yeah, Black people need help in general. However, where do we suspect this help will come from? Mm. I think I think many people would say that they're looking for it to come outside of their community. And I'm not sure if that's right or wrong, but I wonder why we're not having that conversation within the community. And maybe we are, maybe I'm just missing it. I'm sure we talk. I don't, th- I don't think we're missing it. We okay. can't both be missing it. <laughs> You never know. We, we could, exactly. There could be so, something out there that we can't see. That's true. So I asked you this question because, you know, just to test the waters, right? We okay. I've tiptoed around the literacy conversation in spaces, yeah, social spaces, things like that. Sure. And primarily, sure. the response is, yeah, white people better get in here and fix this. Why people better get up here and teach our kids to read? And it's like, are you kidding? And maybe you're in, sure, let's say you're serious. Let me be, let me not be gaslighting here. Sure, you're serious. Wonderful. What happens if they don't? That's right. the question. Right. If they don't, you continue to allow generations of Black children to go without the basic skills that they need to be functional members of their own community. Right, white, you know, white larger society aside, are you equipping them to be better to their to themselves and to each other? When you have twelve year old boys in PG County, which is supposed to be one of the black elite counties in this country, mm-hmm. right, robbing other twelve year old black boys at gunpoint, or or being shot and killed late night on the street in Chicago, when we have Stuff like this happening, we have to keep asking. How? Okay, I get it. Yes, we've been wrong. Yes, all of the wrongs have contributed to the now. Yes, fact and fact. Are you all still willing to wait for white empathy to kick in to start to address this problem? Because we are. It doesn't look like we have that kind of time. It is my theory. Sure. That black children will continue to go in the direction that we see them headed in. In the same way that men and women a long time ago had an agreement, you go outside and kill caribou, I'll sit in here and cook and clean and take care of it. Okay, cool, we have an agreement, right? In the same way that men and women had an agreement a long time ago, and now we look at the today and somebody's not holding up their end of the agreement and people want to come back and renegotiate. That's where this gender war comes in, right? There is another negotiation that we don't talk about happening. It's the one between kids and adults. If we look anywhere in society where there are groups of kids who have been abandoned, they form their own communities. Fact. They go out and forage. They hunt. Typically they hunt adults (laughs) because we have what they need. Yeah. So we see that if, if 
just left to their own devices. Children are intelligent enough to figure it out. They don't want to. It's not a comfortable life being an illegal adult, basically. But if you're left to fend for yourself, you really have no choice. Black children, in many instances, have been left to fend for themselves. This war we see, them essentially lashing out and you know, committing themselves to a life of crime, I don't think that's the fun option. I don't think they looked at, hey, I can sit in this comfortable life, you know, maintain my agreement to get A's and B's and my mom and dad will provide everything for me, or I can go outside and, and fight my peers for food. We would be, it would be a wicked assumption about black children to say that they willingly chose the latter, right? It is my theory that black adults just fail to hold up the first, that end of the bargain. And a part of that provision that was promised to children, right, was in equipping them with the necessary tools to become functioning parts of society. So it's not white people who sell our kids first, it's us. I knew how to read and write before I got to school. My daddy taught me to read and write. I was on his lap at two, <laughs> mm. talking about ABCs in multiple languages. How are you helping your children? Because waiting on white America, how, 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 much, how much more time do you got? It looks like we may actually be out of time. So I think when crime rates and other things, you know, have been spiking or have maintained this, this you know, a rate that is generally concerning. However, Black people have been semi-well-performing. I think we've been able to kind of keep the two conversations separate. That's no longer the case today. We are in every way on the decline. And if black children are the future, well, the future is looking pretty bleak too. Did, so, you, did you ever watch the movie, The Hate You Give? I feel like I'm about to call this girl Amanda Seals, but it is not Amanda Seals. But it's a <laughs> young Amanda Lee Sternberg. <laughs> there we or go. Some, something <laughs> like that. Her first name was yeah, something with an A. The A actress. She played Rue uh, on yeah. uh, whatever that movie was. Yeah, that was good. Movie. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 So the the hate you give, um, it was inspired by. Uh, I guess it would be considered an acronym from Tupac Shakur. I know they recently did a, a documentary called Dear Mama about Tupac and uh, Fina Shakur and just, uh, I guess, how they, they both kind of intertwined their visions and how they impacted the world. It's a really great documentary that just wrapped up last week. Uh, but the acronym comes from Tupac and it's a thug life. And it starts off by saying the hate you give little infants Fs everybody or Fs, wait, what's the last one? Uh, yeah, everyone. I was, I was asking if you're familiar with the acronym uh, and why Tupac had that thug life on his, on his tattoo, on his chest. I am not a Tupac historian in any way, shape, or form. Don't ask me anything about. <laughs> understood. Understood. Tupac related, other than keep your head up, because that's only okay. I know. 
Fair enough. Very sticky oriented. So go ahead and and look me in. Oh no! I, uh, as you were talking, I w- I wasn't going to go down a, a too far of a Tupac alley. Um, but as you were talking, I just was thinking about when have we heard in history when the youth is uh, crying out and trying to say what you're saying, but they may not know what to say or what to ask for. They're just crying out in whatever way that they choose to cry out. Um, I guess I'll add one more Tupac reference and then I'll leave it alone. I I respect Biggie too, Uh, but there's a part on Kendrick Lamar's album, To Pimp a Butterfly. And at the end of To Pimp a Butterfly, there's an interview, or towards the end, there's an interview between Kendrick Lamar and Tupac that they edited together. And he says on there, to even to relate back to the thug life tattoo, is uh, one day the poor is going to rise up and uh, those who have been trying to hold us back, we're going to you know eat the rich in his own ways. He doesn't say it exactly like that. Uh, but he says, you can't keep us down any longer. I bring all of this up because I'm just listening to you. And I do believe one of the ways to do that is through literacy. I came across a quote recently that says that financial, uh, oh, finance is the language of the elite, right? I know we were talking about uh, literacy overall. Uh, but uh, it talks about how finance is the, the language of the elite. And I think finance is built on top of uh, the foundation that we're talking about today. So if we are going to you know, move in a spirit of uh, having true freedom, uh, long-term freedom and true wealth, which is to be able to move about and do the things that you want to do, we have to understand those languages that are on top of uh, this thing that we call society. The languages in all shapes and sizes are going to be the things that dictate uh, how we read and how we interact and how we uh, tell our stories to one another. Any thoughts on that? Oh, not any general thoughts. Okay. Uh, so uh, from the literacy conversation, I know before we start talking, I did want to touch on a little bit of financial literacy as well. Um, there is a story that came out. I think I saw you tweet about it. And I think that's how, uh, I know we talked before then uh, through social media. But I definitely wanted to kind of catch up with you and get your thoughts on it. There was this Ebony K. Williams situation that happened about her being asked if she would ever date a bus driver. And uh, she said if he owned the bus. And I, I know a lot of people took it towards like relationships and who you date. Uh, we did do an episode briefly just about, well, you know, for, it was actually dedicated to the bus drivers. Say, so, well, if you do want to own the bus, well, here's how you could do it. 
I'm curious your thoughts around the, the entire topic and then how it also relates back to financial literacy, literacy overall. Um, and I look forward to exploring that idea with you. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I wish that Black America would grow tired of attempting to shame Black women for having standards and boundaries okay. and other basic things. Um, just a few years ago, Black men were differentiating the low value from the high value and telling us to choose X, Y, Z, and da 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 So when it is a conversation that Black men can weaponize, they tend to enjoy shitting on each other and talking about which Black men aren't cut out for marriage and courtship and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure why this this ruffled so many feathers. I don't think she said anything different from what we've generally been hearing from the Manosphere um, or from the Black Pill spaces for, I mean, for, I would say for the last five years. And that's only as I have become aware of these things. These conversations have been happening long before I was even clued in on them. Um, I think it's just different when you can leverage this kind of conversation as an attack as opposed to someone communicating similar, you know, similar thoughts, similar thoughts or beliefs um, as, a, as a means of protection. Mm, right. This is a woman who is very highly educated, extremely accomplished in her career, um, a public figure, lots of things going for her. And we recognize that dating happens I mean, if we, I guess unless we're limiting proximity to a, a crime-related situation, but it's not. You also date in proximity of who is in your social circle. Bus drivers probably aren't even bumping elbows with Ebony K. Williams. This, she doesn't go to the same bars. Her social setting is not the same as theirs. Her friendship circles don't intersect with theirs. So there's also just a, an unlikeliness of this even happening to begin with that makes all of the hubbub in her direction just very strange. Uh, it, it is not even that she has probably been avoiding the bus drivers. She probably doesn't even run into bus drivers all like that. So let's just start with this probably being a completely hypothetical conversation for this woman. She is not down at D-Bar off of MLK. She's just not. She's not. So let's, let's be very honest about who we're even talking about, right? Okay, fair. Now, next to that, where we have seen women who have attained the same level of success as Ebony or similar, where we have seen Black women in her bracket date men who we perceive, because we're going to stop pretending that all Black men, all men are created equal. That would have just been as of last week when Ebony made y'all mad. Prior to that, y'all have been saying, choose better. How do we do so if you're all the same? So let's cut the cap. Cut the cap. Right? We are talking about women who have done this before. We're talking about your, what is her name? Sherry Shepard. Mm -hmm. We're talking about your um, very popular DJ personality, Wendy Williams. Sure. Mm -hmm. We can name, we, you know, 
the woman who was in Baby Boy, she has a tendency to date, you know. Anyway, we're not going to keep naming names. However, <laughs> okay. <laughs> when Black women have done what people are suggesting Ebony should do, right, is drop her standards for, you know, specifically looking to date men that she perceives to be in her social bracket. Where we've seen Black women do that, they have been shamed and ridiculed and mocked when these situations have backfired on them, which they have. Let's be very clear. In very few instances has this worked out in the woman's mm-hmm. favor. And by worked out, I don't mean she cashes out in case of a divorce. I mean, she's living with her husband in, in a happy, healthy marriage. That's cashing out for most Black women. So we don't see these situations work out for Black women. Right. You've also suggested that to avoid being the Wendy Williams or the Sherry Shepherd, to not do so. Now, suddenly, when a Black woman expresses being in agreement with this ideation, everybody's attacking her. Some women are perfectly fine with the guy who is perfectly fine with being the bus driver. In fact, I'm going to go, I'm going to step out on a limb and jump off of this hoe. Most Black women. And I'm saying what I'm saying. Most black women are okay with the guy who is just okay with being okay. Mm-hmm. For our entire our, our entire childhood have been dedicated to conditioning conditioning us as girls to understand that black men are going to show up with only a portion of what you want, and out of that portion, you better turn it into what you need, because they have challenges that they can't get around, can't get over. And as their partner, you just got to make it work. We have been sold that since childhood. There are countless videos of women being asked what their dating requirements are. And for some reason, it's always the black girls who say, he doesn't have to have any money. I'll help him get some. So we're going to stop pretending like black women have just operated on this gold digger doctrine. They're whole, like, stop it. No, black women have been, you know, you've been the boots, they've been the straps trying to help you get ahead. Now, here is a Black woman who's been the bootstrap for herself. And she is looking for a partner who has done the same. And we shame her? It's a, it's a very strange way of saying you don't get to want what you think you're worth. But we know that. We know that that's how most... We, we, we know. We know, guys. We get it. We know that's how you feel. <laughs> you don't have to tell us. Surprise, we've been hearing it for a very long time. I saw nothing wrong with what she said. And if anything, the backlash that she received just, I mean, possibly highlighted why the way that she looks at this situation is why she's in the right for it. And and I'm not going to go too much into that. But if all the people responding to her, telling her to unalive herself and oh, that she deserves to be armed, represented the bus driver you know you know group then yeah she's right to avoid the bus drivers i don't know what to tell you guys <laughs> you didn't make a good case for yourself by attacking this woman for requesting not not to say i don't want a man around a bus because i think buses are just nasty we're <laughs> looking for a man to be in ownership a position of ownership that's what y'all are mad at right help me understand <laughs> the only pushback i have on the entire story and narrative before i'll say it i do agree no one should be sending uh death threats or attacking anyone or 
really judging anyone else's opinion. I mean, that's what the person wants, whoever it may be. Everybody wants what they want, and it should be respected for their stance on whatever it is that they want. As long as it ain't hurting nobody. I agree. The thing that I push back against the whole narrative is it started with Ayana and Ebony K. Williams, and she said a bus driver. And maybe I missed something because I wasn't watching it 24-7. But then like the next day, it became about um, became about Black men and about uh, Black people and uh, Black people being in ownership. And then the next day on The Breakfast Club, it was uh, making sure that white supremacy doesn't defeat us. And, you know, what can we do as Black, black people? And all that sounds good, but the only thing I, I couldn't figure out was Ayanna never said the bus driver was Black. That, and then I looked up uh, like bus drivers in America and what their the percentage of, of um, the, I guess, by race, what, 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 what type of people drive buses. And it's like 30% Black, 15% Hispanic, and actually the majority of bus drivers are white. I guess that's where I got, like, where did this become like a, I don't know, it became almost like a, a Black woman versus Black man thing. And I'm just curious how it got there when no one ever said a bus driver was Black. Um, I think it was black men that I, that threw themselves in front of the bus. Um, there is an assumption that where you see a black woman, that there is uh, that she is primarily dating black men. So black men made themselves the focus of this conversation, only to find out that Ebony K dates outside of her race as well. Exactly. And I think the most recent ex was a white man. So, um, as someone who as someone who has been on the receiving end mm-hmm. of writing an article about men okay, and black men seeing that it was a black woman who wrote it and deciding that I was speaking to them and then proceeding to dox me, call my parents home, send me death threats for about three months. As someone who's been on the receiving end of black men's mistaken, oh, she talking to me kind of energy. Um, she was responding for good reason. I'm not going to sit and gaslight her and pretend that her inbox, her mentions was full of white and Hispanic men, mad that she said, I will only date a bus driver if he owns the company, where you and I are going to be very honest here and say that she replied to Black men because Black men replied to her. She didn't okay. say anything about it being a Black man. But Black no, Twitter, because you, yeah. you and I were on there. You and yeah, I. we were. <laughs> No, that's why I'm, that's why I'm fascinated with this. Okay, and that's my point. If if we if it hadn't become a black discussion, she was on a Breakfast Club. She didn't go to any other radio station. No, no white radio station oh, okay. forced her to come in and talk about why she disrespected white bus drivers. Correct. It was black men and light skin envy who decided that she's talking about us. We gotta hold her <laughs> accountable. So that's why she responded to black men, and, and I think it's it's a gas. It is a total gaslight to say, oh. Now she's talking to black men. Come on, y'all. Y'all been throwing rocks at her window for the last 24 hours. Okay, y'all brought so buses out and everything. Buses union, calling her phone. So, yeah, that's why she's talking to black men. But I agree. Initially, she doesn't say anything about black men. But mm-hmm. I want to be very clear. Iyanla was talking about black men. 
but that's I don't know if you're not ready to have that conversation, but yeah. Iyama was talking about black men and Iyama took the first dig. She knew what she was implying by asking, would you date a bus driver to a decorated attorney and published author? She knew what she was doing. This is a woman who has been very open about the fact that as an attorney, she was dating and marrying homeless men who needed a place to stay so much so she was housing them in her, in her professional office. So Iyala knows a thing or two about dating black men that she perceives to be of lesser value than her. The way that she phrased that question as someone who works in words, and let me tell you what the conversation communicated to me, that she was asking Ebony, would you date someone you think is lower than you? She right. just put a, a job title in place for that. I agree. And Ebony answered, not knowing that she was being set up. So I don't even think all, all of the backlash doesn't even belong to Ebony. If people wanted to be mad with the inference that Black men are lesser than, it started with Queen Mother Earth. But, you know, we don't, okay. <laughs> you know, we kind of wrap that up in, in pro-Blackness and we missed who took the first dig. It was my Ebony. Okay. I, I hadn't thought of that perspective before. And uh, I can't disagree with it. I mean, we're both looking at this uh, situation that happened. And I love this. All right. We're able to dissect <laughs> it now, now that it's happened. But I do want right. to say, I'm not trying to gaslight Ebony K. Williams' experience. I'm not saying that Black men didn't come after her and that there wasn't a reason for her to speak to Black men. Um, but I do find it funny that uh, she wouldn't just say that part. Because if she says, because I think what ended up happening to her was she was defending her stance on something that didn't need a defense. All she would have to say is, y'all, who said, who said that this bus driver was black? And then it would shut the whole, it would shut the whole radio station. I'm thinking of Breakfast Club, but I'm sure there was other places. It would shut the whole radio station down because they're sitting there like grilling her hard. And I watch it twice. And I'm like, no one ever, she never said anything about it being a black bus driver. I, so I agree and I disagree. Okay. I agree with you that she shouldn't even have offered an answer. How, I'm, but I'm going to say this. The first time that I, people came at me like that, I really wanted to explain myself. Okay. Because I knew that I was misunderstood. Right. I wrote this article and this was back. I was writing for Madame Noir. I wrote an article, this was probably 2018, about why I didn't date Americans. Americans. Mm -hmm. Americans was in the title. <laughs> so we're talking, we're very clear. And if you read the article, which, you know, later some men who I'm, I'm not even going to take a literacy jab because it's too easy. Okay. The men, some men who actually read the article reached out to me and said, yeah, after reading your article, I not only understand, I agree. We're talking about American culture, Americans, you know, approach to dating, different things. And as someone who, who is a part of, of multiple cultures, I think I have a right to say, yeah, I've enjoyed dating on this side of my culture more than this one. However, mm -hmm. the attack right this people coming at me as oh you don't date black men was like whoa no i need to explain like that's not what i said guys if my assumption was oh we're actually here to engage maybe you misunderstood me 
but there was no right. misunderstanding. I w- it was just easy to attack me. They weren't there to understand. And you realize once people have succumbed to this mob kind of approach to, to whatever, which Twitter is very easy to do, no one's interested in what she's saying. We're all just trying mm. to get our ads. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. getting their licks in on this woman. So I, I don't think that she would have quelled any kind of, of you know, any of the fire by saying, hey, who said that this guy was, was Black? I think, I, I think in many ways, when people are accustomed to being swung on, whether or not you swung on them, they may start swinging back. I think both Black men and women will very quickly just start swinging back on you and they don't care whether, like, we'll talk about whether or not you swung on me later. Right. right. So they may be open to hearing her now, but when it happened, nobody on Twitter was trying to hear what she had to say. That's true. I think that's why she went on The Breakfast Club, but Mm -hmm. I also think that's exactly why she should not have gone on The Breakfast Club. That's why DJ yelled at her the whole time. You get what I'm saying? Sometimes people just want to get their stuff off. They don't, they're not in the space to hear, oh, I misunderstood you. Oh, okay. So now calming down is my job. Right. <laughs> no, I want you to explain to me and da, 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 make it right. But she's like, I didn't even say that. I didn't. Why are you mad? It's too late yeah. when people are mad. It it uh it did feel like uh I won't say bullying, but it definitely felt like you know this isn't really a situation where you actually value someone's perspective, even if you don't agree with the perspective. It didn't feel necessarily that her perspective was even valued. So it, so as I'm just sitting back and I'm watching it, I'm like, I don't know. I, I guess with the eyeballs and you know being able to bring attention to it is is good in that respect. But maybe have the conversation with someone uh, who actually wants to hear your point of view, because then the audience is going to lean towards, uh, well, not the whole audience, but some of the audience is going to lean towards uh, the trusted person that they're listening to, which in this case is DJ Envy or whoever the host is. And they're not necessarily listening to the overall message. No, I agree. And I, I think when, <clears throat> when you're in a contentious space, mm-hmm. very rarely you put your energy, your effort behind actually clarifying your statement because you're being swung on and you've mm-hmm. got to focus on what? Defending yourself. So she spent all of her time on the breakfast club defending herself against dj envy's misinterpretation of what she said she couldn't even actually explain you get what i'm saying she's just Mm -hmm. trying to say you're wrong envy you're wrong envy so people walked away from that interview just watching her lose a fight and you know a a fight to defend herself against envy's interpretation she didn't fail to explain herself she actually never really did that's why you don't put yourself in those kind of spaces but it's like "Ah, i i question what went into that decision to go on the breakfast club to begin with? I don't consider them to be a very serious platform. And, mm-hmm. as, and well, we're being very honest. History has demonstrated to us that they are a very unsafe space for black women. I, I agree there. So we can, we might laugh at little mama. We might laugh at Monique. We might laugh at the black women who have very negative experiences there, but how many does it take for us to recognize these two dudes are just not who you want to go to. If you want to really explain yourself mm-hmm. as a black woman. So, um, and, and Envy took full advantage, which, I mean, I, I fully, you know, find that to be within his, his scope, knowing what I know about him. Um, but he was, I've seen him discuss some very sensitive topics, mm-hmm. things that are far more sensitive to him in his situation 
his lived experience, they, uh, infidelity with his wife, his, just very scary, just things. You could have also, you know, lost your marriage. And I've seen him discuss those things in a very cavalier way. Oh, yeah, one time, you know, I used to be so abusive. My wife wanted to go out and I just wet all her clothes to make sure she couldn't leave. Just very flippant about it. But this situation and bus drivers, you have never been in either situation. You've never been a bus driver. Mm. Never been turned down by a woman for being a bus driver. And look how mad you are at this woman yelling in her face. <laughs> you got a great point. <laughs> Your wife is like, well, you almost left him and you just smiling, just cheesing with a blazer on. Sir, I, it, it was, it was, it was, we just wanted to get our licks in. And as, at a certain point, as a community, it would it'd be much easier for us to move these conversations forward if we could like really acknowledge these things. Whether we laugh about it later is irrelevant. But to acknowledge, like, one, this lady said nothing, nothing wrong. No one's talking about the fact that Melinda Gates was not only attracted to Bill because he had a nine to five, he was also building an empire in the basement. Right. So not every woman is okay with you just going to work and clocking out. Some women, especially women who feel like they are, you know, very ambitious, you know, professionally themselves, that's what they want in a partner. So she said nothing wrong to begin with. She was set up from the jump and then proceeded to be put in very just uncomfortable, unsafe spaces in an attempt to get her to explain yourself, explain yourself. It's like, you got me in a corner. There's, there's nothing I can do now but let this die down. And I don't know where her PR people are, but if anything, she could have should have just released a nice little statement and not done any interviews for a while because it, it was just too hot for her. And I actually feel bad that that's the mm. experience she had. Well, and this, I know this is not the conversation for here, but sure. if Iyama was in any way, shape, or form as pro-Black woman as she claims to be, she mm. would have came out and made her statement herself in defense of Ebony because she set up that conversation in a very strategic way. She knows it. The fact that of all people she's been silent in the aftermath just speaks volumes about the ongoing, contentious, unspoken relationship between Black women of older and younger. But I know that's not the conversation for today, but shame on her. <laughs> I just want her to know I clocked her tea. I saw what she did mm. there. You, catch cool, a, you yeah. are catching a lot. She did do a live yeah. like the next day uh, directly for bus drivers and uh, working class people. So, like she specifically Even chose <laughs> to like do the opposite <laughs> and try to, you know, ride yeah. the other way. So I, I now that you're putting that all together, I can't disagree. You're stringing this uh, narrative together very well. When you said you was a wordsmith, <laughs> you meant this. I, I respect it. I'm good at what I do. I do a little, little razzle-dazzle now. But... <laughs> no, you, uh, before we head out. Definitely not trying to sway you. Before yeah. we head out, you really have opened my eyes on, on both stories. Uh, it's something I want to pay more attention to is the Black literacy, right? And uh, I definitely haven't been telling that story enough. And so I definitely want to uh, explore it further. Uh, and then you opened my eyes to maybe something we have to talk about in the future uh, about the man and, and woman relationship just in society overall, even besides dating. I know that that ends up happening uh, when you bring that with those that topic up, but just how we value one another overall and uh, how we communicate with each other. I think that, because you were, when I first, uh, when we first 
connected today. We were talking a little bit about financial literacy. And then as we, you know, press record and we start talking about literacy, you took it to a more foundational level. So the Ebony K. Williams conversation feels about, you know, romantic relationships. And I believe the more foundational conversation is just relationships overall between men and women. And then of course, as we dive deeper and narrow in black black men and black women, um, I think that just needs a better conversation overall. Take out the dating part and just as human beings, how can we, you know, uh, better understand each other and better work together? And like you said, men did jump out and think that this story was about them and it wasn't. And so how do we have those conversations uh, so then we can uh, read the room better? So definitely, sure. I, I thank you for opening my eyes on that. Um, how do people, if they ever want to uh, work with you or collaborate with you, how can they work with you? And then any final thoughts you have before we head out today? For sure. Um... Social media platforms, that's just Ara, that's A-R-A-H. Feel free to reach out to me or email is probably um, the best method of contact right now. And that would be Ara the Quill, that's Q-U-I-L-L, trying to help you out, at gmail.com. <laughs> I would love to just, if I can, shamelessly uh, plug myself. Sure. I'm working on a project right now. It is called The Anxious Hour, something like a podcast, video series, whatever you want to call it, where I walk through what some might consider to be more complex or dense uh, psychosocial theories, things that explain human behavior. And then I help you understand why you fight with your friends every time you go on vacation or your mom gets an attitude every time you, you, you have something to celebrate. Very everyday commonplace situations we're going to walk through the psychological understanding of why people do the things that they do. Um, and I just, I know that therapy is expensive. Therapy is not nearly as accessible as we would love it to be. Um, however, it has worked wonders for me. So I'm trying to figure out how to share the things that I've learned over the years um, that have helped me make sense of my world and to feel more safe and sound in it. Um, and I want to share that with my community. So that'll be launching um, the first week of June. 6-3-23 is the launch date. So yeah, just wanted to share that. But this That's has awesome. been fun. <laughs> yes, been in the been for a while, and I'm glad we got to make this happen. Yes, yes. This is an awesome conversation. Where will that uh, podcast, what platforms will it be on? Do you know? It's going to be on all of them. So Apple, you can okay. get it on um, the Amazon podcast. It'll be on Spotify. Um, it's actually already up there, just waiting for me to are uploading the fun stuff so yeah and of course if you follow me on social media i'll be sharing information um as we get closer to launch as well well now that i've had this conversation with you i have to hear your perspective on on a lot of these topics um and hopefully uh as your podcast continues to grow you'll come back and we can uh, dive Absolutely. into more human behavior because you're good at it uh, you definitely I would love that very much. <laughs> you showed me the blind side to some of these topics. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't think of it that way. So yeah, I look forward to that conversation. You know what? Yeah. That's the power of clear and concise communication. As I've learned throughout the course of my career, it's not mm -hmm. just about what we can write down. It's about what we can help each other to understand and see. 
So I'm going to try to use it, use it for all I can while I have this gift for sure. I love it. Thank you so much, Ara, for coming on Black Equity Podcast. Uh, I know many people will be blessed by this conversation and I look forward to staying in touch and uh, building a strong network with one another. Thank you for coming on again. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me.